0: God, that's where we try to live our lives, trusting in you, allowing you to guide us and lead us so that we may be faithful followers of Jesus Christ, that we may live our lives so that people can see you through what we do. And God, as we spend this time talking about David, we pray that you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of each heart here be pleasing in your sight O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. So we're starting a new series today and and was thinking a while ago about uh, what to preach on and and different things. And I realized that I haven't done a series on David uh, here at this church. I've done series in the past, other churches, about King David. And I thought, let's let's kind of bring that back up again because I think we're all familiar with David. We... uh, we know who he is and 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 what he has done. I think sometimes we get caught in the caricature of David, you know, the little boy with the sling and, and that type of stuff. And we're, we're familiar with that. We're familiar with other stories of David, too. But to fully understand who he was and, and why he was such an important character in the life of the Israelites, but also why he is still an important character for us as well. Most of us know that uh, David was credited in writing a lot of the psalms that we have in the Old Testament. And he was a very well-known musician. But there are a couple of things that we don't really understand or don't know about David. Uh, when I was in uh, about 2019, we took, I took my second trip to the Holy Land and I got a couple of pictures here of of the trip, and this is where they say David's tomb is. On uh, the uh, the top picture is where they say that David is, and then the other one is is right there beside it. It's kind of a nice library, and and there were people that were there praying and and studying and. Doing all of these things around around David's uh, David's tomb. Now we don't think this is really David's tomb because uh, David was reportedly buried by the Temple Mount, and this is a little farther away from from where the Temple Mount is. But it, it's always nice to have a place to to go and remember and to to be able to to spend time dwelling on the importance of this character. Now, a couple other interesting things about David is that they say that his birthday and his death day are on the same day, several years apart, of course, but that day is Pentecost. Now, we, uh, as Christians, we know what Pentecost is as the birthday of the church. That's when the uh, the disciples were gathered in a room together and tongues of fire were on their heads and they were speaking uh, languages that everybody understood what they were saying, and that was the coming of the Holy Spirit. But, but Pentecost meant something a whole lot more to the Jewish people. Pentecost was also the day that the Jewish people said that Moses was given the uh, Ten Commandments or the Torah uh, in, on, on the top of Mount Sinai. But Pentecost is also that day that they say is David's birth date and his death date. So we have those ideas around who David is, but we don't really quite understand what the significance of why David came to power. That all has to do with a king by the name of Saul. King Saul, he came into uh, power through uh, Samuel blessing him, but all of that is built up with a long history of things that were happening with the Jewish people. Before we get to First and Second Samuel, there were the judges. And, and the judges were individuals that were set apart to, to kind of help lead the Israelites into or uh, as they, they overtook the promised land but there was a story that was always told about what the israelites did it it was kind of followed in this circular pattern if you will the the israelites were, were fine they were doing good and then there was this act of disobedience and then after that act of disobedience they would be overtaken by another country or an occupying force then the israelites would repent from what they would do, and then God would send another judge, and that judge would release them and free them, and then that circle would go over and over and over again. And, and the Israelites, it got to a point they were going, you know, I, I think they realized that the same thing is happening over and over again, and, and there's one thing that could fix this. And the one thing that can fix this is that we need to have a king just like everybody else has a king. Everybody else has a king, and they're fine. So we want God to give us a king. So God relented and said, fine, they want a king, we'll give them a king. And Saul was named the king of Israel, the very first king of Israel. Now, Now Saul was a very mighty and powerful king. He, he, was a very, he was a military genius. There were a lot of things that he did to help protect Israel, but also to advance them in the land that they were in. But there was one thing about Saul. Saul was unfaithful to God. There were two specific instances that, that caused this to happen. First of all, Saul was very, uh, had very big success over a certain battle. And after the battle, they were supposed to give a burnt offering of sacrifice for Thanksgiving for winning the battle. But Samuel wasn't there. Samuel had the priestly duty of, of taking care of the, the offerings and everything, while Saul did the military political duties of that time. Well, Samuel sent word saying, you need to wait for seven days and I will be there and then we will take care of the burnt offerings. Well, seven days came. Samuel wasn't quite there yet. So Saul, being who Saul is, said, well, we'll just do this on our own. And he did all the burnt offerings, disobeying the orders that God had given him. The second story goes to a, a battle that he had with Amalek and and he was supposed to follow through and, and, and do what God specifically told him to do within this battle and Saul failed to do this. So you have these two separate things that happened showing that that, sa- that Saul was his own man and he didn't need to have God to be telling him or guiding him on how to do things and God said, you know, I've given up on Saul. Saul is not going to be the king, and I'm going to anoint someone to step in to be the new king of Israel. And that brings us to our scripture for today. Our scripture is from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. You can follow along in your Bibles, or we'll have the words on the screen for you as well. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourself and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Elab and and thought, Surely the Lord anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Anadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shama pass by, but Saul said, Nor had the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him, for we will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel then went to Rama, the word of God for the people of God, thanks be to God. So there's a lot to unpack within this passage. One of the first questions that I come to whenever I think about this passage, is: I go, why Jesse? Why, why is Jesse the one that, that God chose to, to have the, his, one of his sons become the king? Now, if you look in the genealogies that you can find in Matthew and also in Luke, you can see that Jesse was from the line of, of, of Boaz and, and Ruth. And so he was one of their descendants. So he is following in the line that, that God has called him to do. But we know that Jesse, for to be called to this particular time and place, he had to have some sort of connection within Bethlehem. He had to be known, he had to be understood as an upright and solid individual. And that means since Jesse was an upright and solid individual, surely his sons were upright and solid individuals too. I think it's amazing that we take a look at David and we have this caricature of this this small, tiny, little, wimpish boy, but I don't think he was like that at all. We hear a description of who David was in this passage that says he was glowing with health, had a fine appearance and, a ham- and handsome features. I just think this goes to show that David was somebody that his dad trusted with the sheep, even though he was the youngest, even though he was farthest down the line than anybody else, but he could handle the situation and the stresses that would, ha- that would go along tending how the family made money at that time. I think it's also funny to understand that we go all the way to the eighth son. We're skipping that that seven number, the the one that we talk about with creation and, and the holy number of seven and saying, we're going even past that to bring somebody in to become the leader of the kingdom of Israel. I think this goes to show that God loves to use the most unexpected things in order to bring God's work into fruition. If you look throughout the Old Testament, you can see stories of ways that God did something unusual or God did something different than what society may have thought that you should do. It is all of these things that shows and points to David becoming the king over his seven brothers. Now, this wasn't a trickery thing. We we see that in the Old Testament too, especially with the story with with uh, Esau and Jacob. Esau and Jacob were twins in the womb, and as they were coming out, Jacob had a hold of Esau's ankle and later challenged Esau through ways of wit to overtake and get the birthright from his father. Remember the story of Esau and being famished and Jacob providing soup so he can have his birthright. And then Jacob's mom tricking, uh, tricking and having Jacob receive the blessing over Esau. God isn't doing a tricky thing here. He is setting up a way for us to understand that God is doing something unexpected. God is doing something mighty and God is showing how his power, his authority can be seen through the people of Israel. And I think the thing that really set David apart from his brothers and any other type of person who could become the leader of Israel was David's heart. The scripture says that the Lord does not look upon the outwardly appearance, but the Lord looks within the heart. So that brings the other question that I have. What exactly does it take for God to look at our hearts? What is it that God is looking for in our hearts? And if we see David, I think the first thing that we see is that there is humility. Humility, I think, is extremely important when we talk about being followers of Jesus Christ. Humility is important because it, it, it keeps us humble. It, it keeps us from trying to, to take the higher positions and, and try to get everybody to take a look at us. When we are humble, we are saying, Lord, I, I, I am teachable. I, I want to know. I want to understand. I, I, I want to learn from others. But another thing that being humble does is that it helps lead us to repentance. It helps us to see, you know, at times we may not get it all right. We may not fully understand, and we need to be led into the life of repentance. As 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 says, We are to humble ourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. We must cast our anxieties on him because he cares for you. I think a lack of of humbleness can be a building point for anxiety. When we don't want to lay ourselves down, we we start to build up this this temptation inside of us or or this angst inside of us because we want to make sure that we have what is ours. We want to make sure that we are taking care of ourselves above anybody else, but that is not the way of a shepherd, and that is not the way of Christ. When we lead ourselves to repentance, we are following the words that Jesus tells us in his very first sermon in Luke chapter 4, to repent, to turn, and to believe the gospel. One of the ways that we are able to do that is by following the second step, and that is hiding God's word in our heart. Psalm 119, verse 11, which is attributed to David, he writes, I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. The scripture is foundational for us. We, we, we go to Scripture so we can understand how God is calling us and, and, and asking us to move forward in our lives. When we take a look at Scripture, we, we know that we should take it and hide it in our hearts. That's why it is so important for us to take the opportunity to memorize Scripture. We may have certain passages memorized, like John three sixteen or uh, Psalm one eight one nineteen verse one o five. These passages are are foundational passages that help us see how we can fully understand what God's word is. I will admit, scripture memorization is not one of my strong suits. I I have a hard time memorizing scripture, but when I once you have the heart of God, when I want to see who God is, I go to God's word to understand and to hear how I can move forward in my life as a follower of Jesus Christ. Another way that we can look at what has in our heart or the things that God is looking for in our hearts is having love for God. I think it's easy for us to follow those things that we love. While Jesus in John 14, 15 says, if you love me, keep my commandments, we, we have to take the opportunity to look and say, what is it that I really love? What is it that I, I really care about? Being it's Sunday, there was an easy target today that, that a lot of pastors like to talk about. Uh, We actually had a few congregation members this morning show up for the 830 service all up in their cowboy gear. And I know probably some of you are looking at your clock going, okay, pastor, you got uh, 14 minutes now to wrap things up because kickoff is at noon. Yeah, we we, we have a tendency to really fall over those things that we really love. I'll admit I'm very guilty of that too but mine is more on Saturdays than it is on Sundays you know making sure that at 11 o'clock I was there in front of the TV to watch Kansas State play a football game against another team that I'm not going to go into because I may have a youth director quit on me because of that but you know it's fun to talk about stuff like that isn't it It's fun to have moments with levity where where you are really supporting a certain team or a certain idea. But when the love of those things become more important than the love that we have of God through Jesus Christ, then we get in trouble. Because I can guarantee you, no football team can give you freedom. No football team can make you whole. No football team can give you those things that you need in your life because the greatest freedom we will ever know is a result of our love and commitment of Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is where we find our true freedom. That, my friends, is where we are made whole again. It is our love of God that, 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 that fills our hearts that allows us to continue to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. And then, as always, I know I say this over and over again, the love that we have of God always calls us to move forward in loving others. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 15 says this. It says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. I think we can destroy one another if we hold on to the love of God for ourselves. I think we could destroy one another if we say, you know, I'm just going to keep what I have and and not share it openly to others. I'm going to destroy others as I see that there are other needs that are in this world right now that I don't want to quite meet because it might give me less than what I need. I haven't heard of any specific calls right now for hurricane uh, relief or what happened in Florida, but I know that those calls will be coming Will we also help when uh, it, it calls for relief comes and we can give what we have to help others who are in need? I think our world is set in a place where we do, as Scripture says, bite and devour each other because we want to lift ourselves up even more than others. But see, that's the good news of the cross. That's the good news of Jesus Christ is that through him, through his love and through his grace, we can then lift others up just as he lifts us up. And the greatest example that we have of this is this table as we celebrate communion this Sunday morning, as we celebrate the breaking of the bread and the pouring of the cup, as we remember Christ's sacrifice for us. And this Sunday is an even more special Communion Sunday because we designate it as World Communion Sunday. And what that means is that there are congregations all over the world today that are breaking the bread and pouring out the cup together. They, they are coming to this table in the recognition of who God is in their lives just as we come recognizing who God is in our lives and the sacrifice that Jesus has given each and every one of us. So God does look at the heart. God does look to see what is going on inside of us, not to scold us, not to shame us, not to make us feel bad for the times that we do things that are not according to his will, but to help us to grow, to help us to love one another, Just as Christ has loved us. Let us pray. Oh God, as we come to this table, we know that we say the same thing that David said in the Psalms to create in us clean hearts and to renew a right spirit within us. Lord, as we come to this table, as we join those all over the world in the the pouring of the cup and the breaking of the bread. Help us to see your love for us. Help us to see your grace for us. Help us to see your life for us. So Lord, we lift this prayer up to you. In the name of the one who loves us and cares for us, Jesus our Lord. Amen.